So here we are on a very lovely, warm spring slash almost summer night here at Abayagiri. Windows open, upper vents open, little soft breeze coming in. Uh, the winter has been long and wet and cool. Flowers are starting to bloom in the in the courtyard. It's quite a quite beautiful time of year. Also, allergies, sniffles, people running <laughs> with with running noses and watery eyes. Flies starting to appear. I've got one buzzing around my ears and nose right this very minute. So. It's always a 50-50 kind of a thing, but uh, to put our attention on the, the pleasant stuff while we've got it is, can be soothing to the senses. I've been uh, doing a fair amount of talking the past couple of weeks, uh, various uh, venues where, that we've just picked up again after the pandemic. Um, years of, of not going down to Berkeley for the first Tuesday of uh, every month, not going to Fort Bragg <clears throat> for the second, second one, third Monday of every month, and not going down into Ukiah for the second Wednesday of every month, three once a month venues that we uh, stopped doing for three years essentially, and we're just picking them up again. And I've, uh, the past couple of weeks have been going around to these various places, starting out the, the rotation. Uh, and so I've uh, been talking a lot, engaging quite a bit, uh, getting these things started, and it's been delightful. Also kind of running out of things to talk about. <laughs> but uh, one thing, one theme did come up uh, a couple of nights ago when I was down in Ukiah at the, the Sudna Center where we started the Ukiah group again on a monthly basis. And I thought I'd just uh, pick up, it was from the questions and answer uh, session that we did at the end of the evening. And uh, one of the attendees was talking about the difficulty he had with settling down uh, on the breath as his meditation object. He, experiences uh, a lot of what he termed the monkey mind, uh, a lot of uh, thinking and uh, darting about uh, the thinking process, just the relentless nattering on uh, that goes in the thinking process and uh, living a fairly engaged life. Uh, and when it comes time to settle in meditation in the evening, I think in particular, or any time during the day, but he was experiencing just this inability, in his words, I think, to, to settle down uh, with the anapanasati, the breathing in and out. And it just uh, seemed quite uh, frustrating, which it will be uh, when that happens. Now, I suspect that most of us can relate to that uh, experience. It's not at all uncommon. In fact, it's more common than, than not probably for most people, at least at periods of time, for uh, the mind uh, not to be able to, to settle uh, easily. 
So he was asking for some guidance on that. And um, you know, various thoughts came up to my mind, but uh, one is to, to not expect the mind to stop its, its thinking, kind of the, the intellect, the duty in a sense of the intellect in some ways is to produce thoughts, that's one of its functions. And so um, to actually uh, expect, especially right at the beginning, that uh, an important goal is to uh, annihilate thinking, uh, if you have that kind of attitude around it, it's just probably going to reinforce it even more because there's a certain tension that gets uh, introduced into the process of meditation if you think you've got to, uh, with some force, uh, annihilate the thinking process. With time and practice and patience and, and rightful consideration of, of uh, your meditation object, uh, it you know, can happen uh, that the thinking process does start to settle and one can experience less uh, obsession with thoughts. Um, but to have that as your goal, your expectation, particularly as you're starting to uh, wind down, uh, is just going to introduce a lot of frustration. So the, you know, the object is not to annihilate thinking, but to, to sort of learn how to be with it uh, and take it less seriously, uh, maybe pay less attention to it, uh, and give it a lot more space, uh, developing spaciousness in the mind uh, that isn't trying to push, push things away, but trying to hold objects of the mind as they come through the mind uh, with um, less attachment, less clinging, less holding. Uh, and that involves uh, opening up, uh, not attending to the content of the thoughts, but stepping back opening up a space in the mind uh, through which the thoughts can uh, more easily arise and pass away on their own accord. And not to force that, but just to let that happen. Mindfulness of breathing is really a, a pretty subtle uh, uh, kind of practice. The breath is actually a fairly subtle object. Uh, and if the mind isn't ready for it, if the mind isn't uh, prepared to, to be with that kind of more subtle object, just from the general engagement of the day, uh, particularly if you have got a, a job or a situation that involves a lot of uh, conceptual processing, attention in that realm, um, then uh, one sometimes needs to uh, take up a theme that's uh, a little bit more uh, active, using the thinking process as a friend, as an aid, uh, rather than as an enemy to get rid of. And uh, the Buddha refers to that uh, in a teaching, um, where he calls, uh, where he refers to it as uh, using directed meditation versus non-directed meditation. So as the teaching goes, um, when, the, when the mind uh, develops or gets experiences of fever or sluggishness uh, or um, 
a kind of uh, scattered, uh, scattered externally uh, kind of experience, um, then uh, it's useful, particularly if you're, say, engaged in a satipatthana meditation, uh, often mindfulness of breathing as one of the primary satipatthana meditations. Uh, if, if one is doing that and, and one of these states arises, uh, like a fever in the body, meaning kind of heated or uh, kind of enthralled with sensual thoughts, uh, or um, maybe uh, thoughts of aversion or irritation, or a, a sluggishness in the body if uh, uh, you just keep on conking out, uh, fading out uh, through, through uh, sloth and torpor, or a um, kind of a scattered agitation, uh, attention darting around all over the place, the monkey mind. Um, then to set aside that satipatthana theme, set aside the mindfulness, the attempt to do uh, mindfulness of breathing and focus on something that's more inspiring, actively inspiring as a way of helping to settle uh, that mind. Lots of different kinds of uh, inspiring themes or, or contemplations that the uh, Buddha introduces uh, throughout the discourses that aren't necessarily satipatthana uh, contemplations. Uh, the, the four foundations of mindfulness, the four establishings of mindfulness outline a, a number of uh, themes to uh, frames of reference uh, that one can pay attention to and uh, develop uh, uh, as the basis for developing calm and insight uh, and leading to Samma Samadhi. Uh, those are the, essentially the contemplations of found in Satipatthana. Uh, but there's a number of other contemplations that uh, can be used to help develop that more settled mind when, when the Satipatthana contemplations are, are not appropriate. Uh, and not working. A number of them, um, or se uh, several of them, uh, are expressed in the in what's called the, the basic, the six recollections, so that one can actively take these up uh, using the thinking process. Uh, the first one of these six is the contemplation of the Buddha. Uh, and then, of course, the next two, contemplation of the Dhamma, contemplation of the Sangha. So picking up the, the triple gem is an act of contemplation uh, and using your thinking process to consider, say, for the first one, uh, the qualities of the Buddha, uh, recollecting his life story, um, actually telling yourself a story, reciting some passages or uh, remembering some of the uh, aspects of his uh, path to enlightenment, taking up the various practices that uh, didn't work so well, learning from that, uh, and uh, going through his, the history of, of what it is that uh, he uh, realized uh, and how he did that, uh, and the amount of commitment uh, and determination and, um, yeah, the... the, the all the qualities that he had to develop on his own without a teacher to uh, realize uh, 
the path, to rediscover the path that Buddhism of the past had, had discovered. Uh, with, he had some teachers, but they weren't fully accomplished teachers. They hadn't realized the path that the Buddha was looking for of complete liberation. So he rediscovered that on his own, and the amount of absolute commitment uh, that that took to see it through to, the, to, to completion. And the compassion that he felt uh, a little bit later on um, to share that and teach that uh, for 45 years after he realized uh, full liberation. Uh, there's a good friend, former monk, uh, of, a good friend of mine who used the Buddha Nisati, Buddha con contemplation of the Buddha, as one of his primary practices. And he would describe, um, sometimes just uh, in his contemplation and his sitting there, imagining that he was actually in the presence of the Buddha uh, as a living being. And coming to the Buddha with all you know, the various conflicts and difficulties he might be experiencing, and knowing that the Buddha was able to, to know those qualities, and uh, just feeling and experiencing the immense compassion that the Buddha would have had for him had he been uh, there in person. And you know, just that no matter what it is that he was experiencing, uh, no matter how difficult or whatever ex experience he was having, that the Buddha would understand and say, oh, that's okay, you know, this is part of being a human being, uh, and give some wise instruction uh, with a very expanded, boundless, compassionate and wise uh, presence. And that that contemplation uh, was uh, very, very useful, very beneficial over many years. So contemplation of the Buddha is one inspiring theme that one could pick up. Contemplation of the Dhamma, the teaching uh, that the Buddha left. As I said, 45 years of sharing that, the, uh, establishing a dispensation uh, in, the, in the world that has lasted for almost 2,600 years now, moving in that direction. And that, you know, as best we can tell, uh, it's still the true Dhamma. It, uh, it can be found. Sometimes it seems like false Dhammas are starting to appear in various aspects of, of the teachings, but, you know, with a relative sense of ease or certainty, one can say that the dispensation is still here. The teachings are still available uh, and uh, they're still uh, clearly elucidated and they're there for us um, to, to understand and to benefit from. It's a teaching that often is described as beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end. Uh, through all of its various uh, aspects uh, and phases, based on the Four Noble Truths, truth of suffering and the cessation of suffering, uh, and carefully detailed all along the way with not just a, a theory or a promise or a, you have to believe in this to gain benefit from it, but as a real practical guide uh, 
the Eightfold Path and all of the teachings that are bound up with the Eightfold Path. It's a complete, complete package uh, and is useful right from the very beginning. Uh, the benefits are realized. Uh, happiness, uh, a real firm sense of happiness can be found in following uh, the threefold path of sila samadhi panya, uh, but even starting with just sila, even if uh, samadhi and, and panya uh, concentration and wisdom aren't developed uh, to any large extent, practicing precepts brings a tremendous amount of goodness and happiness into one's life and into the world. So appreciating that and, and recognizing that and uh, realizing that one's own inspiration uh, to practice even, even just the precepts as we took tonight um, is of immense benefit uh, and what a gift that the Buddha brought into the world by elucidating those, just those, those precepts. Not to mention the, the rest of the path, the development of the higher mind, adhicitta, the samadhi, bringing in a sense of collectedness and composure uh, and stillness into the mind uh, and using that as a basis for contemplation uh, of how suffering arises and the path uh, leading to the complete cessation of suffering. So the full development, sila samadhi panya, uh, that encompasses the, the teachings that are still here, still very practicable. So just thinking about that, using the words, recollecting it, giving yourself a little dhammatak um, can be very settling, inspiring. Recollection of the sangha, uh, the way that it manifests in the world, the fellow practitioners who are committed uh, to the path, uh, our support systems, our teachers, and just even knowing that there are beings in the world who have realized the truth, uh, have experienced the truth at all different levels, you know, uh, right from the beginning, but maybe not having completed uh, the path of the stream enterers, all the way up to the arahants that do exist. Uh, uh, in this very uh, era, in this very decade, in this, uh, we can point to probably a, a few within our own Thai forest tradition uh, who have done their, completed their work. And we can get to know them, get to know their stories, get to know their teachings, hopefully spend time with them uh, if the opportunity arises. And recollect them, re remember them, and let that bring up a sense of immense contentment and, and appreciation. Refuge. There's also um, specifically the recollection of uh, virtue, sila, uh, as, as I mentioned as part of the recollection of the Dhamma as well, uh, as, as a specific contemplation and uh, just reflecting on the goodness that arises from following even the first four precepts, refraining from taking life, 
refraining from taking that which is not given, uh, refraining from any kind of harmful sexual activity, uh, and refraining from uh, lying, or misrepresenting the truth, and in extent by extension also harsh speech, useless speech. Uh, and just realizing the amount of uh, peace of mind that following precepts gives, uh, and reflecting on that to the extent that you've been able to, to keep precepts, um, remembering what it was like maybe before you took up the precepts and now that you've taken them up or taken up some of them, uh, looking at the quality of the mind uh, as a result, particularly over a longer period of time. And, you know, watching when the mind gets critical of itself. Uh, I remember when I was just an Anagarika uh, in my first year uh, at the monastery here as we were opening. Uh, I was going through a, a tough spell, a self-critical spell of not developing much settledness or peace of mind. And, and um, uh, Ajahn Suchito was visiting my first time I met him. And uh, I was kind of lamenting my story to him. And he said, well, you know, you've got to think of, of, of this. Have you actually killed anybody today? And I had to admit that I hadn't. <laughs> it was not only light and, and humorous, uh, but also a good thing to remember because, uh, you know, when you think about it, not everybody can say that. And, probably that very day, as happens on every day, there's killing that happens, people taking life, the life of other human beings. So I you know, was able to, to reflect on that, that goodness. Uh, and in fact, I hadn't actually killed any sentient being that day. <laughs> so you know, taking it to its logical conclusion of really reflecting on uh, what you have been able to hold to, what you have been able to do, rather than uh, lamenting about uh, your lack of lack of goodness or your lack of ability to meditate or uh, the general hopelessness of your life go back to go back to the fundamentals go back to the basics of, of recollecting sila and how it feels Another recollection of chaga, chaga nusati, uh, the recollection of giving, uh, more broadly gen the quality of generosity and, and what that feels like. And it can go in different ways. Um, sometimes it's easier to start with trying to recollect uh, when somebody has been generous to you, when somebody has been kind to you and offered their time or their support or material support, if, if that's the case, as it is with monastics. Um, and feeling that sense of gratitude, appreciation of being maybe uh, held and accepted uh, and supported, listened to, and you know, you know, what a wonderful feeling it is to actually have been heard, to have been you know, really held uh, by the attention of somebody who's who wants to, to know what's going on? What does that feel like? And appreciating the good quality, that, uh, the good qualities that, that came from that person, you know, in their 
uh, attempt to, to be there for you. So most of us probably have had at least one incident in our lives where that's happened from someone. And to bring that to mind, um, bring the image of that person to mind, bring the memory of the particular event, uh, the incident, uh, to mind. Uh, or something that evokes a, a sense of uh, appreciation, tenderness, kindness uh, to the heart. Using the memory, the thinking process again in, in that way. And then also uh, recollecting some way that we've done the same thing for somebody else. Uh, some form of kindness or generosity, uh, maybe offering support materially to somebody who needs it, or um, some organization, charitable organization that uh, can benefit from uh, some uh, spare change that you've got, uh, or sometimes even more importantly, that sense of, of giving to somebody else. When have you been there for somebody else? You've been able to step back from your your world uh, for at least a, a period of time, even if it's just a few minutes, to, to actually be fully present uh, for someone. Um, and to be a sounding board or to offer a helping hand, um, caring for a relative, uh, friend, uh, and just bringing that to mind, thinking about it, remembering the image, uh, remembering the incident, and uh, enjoying the feeling that comes from, from doing that. Kind of basking in that uplift that comes to the mind when thinking about it. So rec chaganicity, recollection of giving. The Buddha also suggests one that we don't talk about a whole lot, but uh, can be, depending on your own Beliefs and proclivities are a very inspiring thing too. Recollection of the devas, uh, the celestial beings, particularly along the lines of what it, what it took for them to be reborn in you know, a, a very high, beautiful realm of experience, the, uh, the heavenly realms. Uh, and essentially that it's based on those previous two qualities, the qualities of sila, the quality of generosity, uh, and that aspiration for, for goodness. Uh, and making that a central theme of, of their lives and the results that come from that, uh, uh, the happiness that comes from that in, in that plane of rebirth. So recollecting some of the stories, if you, if, you, if you like to think about other realms and beings in other realms, there's a great book uh, on Buddhist cosmology by Ajahn Punadamo uh, that's actually uh, a couple copies available in our library. It's um, not so easy to find. It's not a commercially published book, but uh, goes into great detail about all the different realms that are talked about uh, in various uh, suttas, but also more in the commentaries, different commentaries, um, later editions. And it talks about, in detail, all the, you know, the wonderful and marvelous and excellent qualities uh, that can be found and experienced in these other realms. So it's a nice way of uh, adding some interest to your contemplation uh, and uh, bringing a sense of uh, uplift, uh, easefulness, enjoyment to the mind. So those are the six basic uh, recollections that the Buddha talks about.
There's other ones too, um, interspersed throughout all of the teachings that can help uh, compose the mind, settle the mind uh, when it's uh, moving about. Uh, particularly if there's a period in that you're experiencing of um, uh, kind of driftiness or uh, um, you know, maybe that kind of sluggishness of mind, that inattention uh, that uh, is recommended, uh, marana sati, the contemplation of death. We've talked a lot about that the past uh, couple of weeks uh, with our very good friend uh, Daniel Fry, uh, young man, 39 years old, uh, regular attendee, at least on a weekly basis, often here at the monastery, lives just two, lived just two miles down the street, his very sudden uh, and unexpected uh, death from kind of a freak accident. So that's brought up a lot of uh, contemplations of death, a lot of reflections from members of the community, uh, in the evening uh, teachings and also in the morning reflections. And remembering uh, the fleetingness and the unpredictability of, of our lives. Uh, not to get complacent because tomorrow, who knows, death may come. It helps to really instill a, an acute sense of urgency not to waste time, uh, this precious opportunity um, to practice. We've got our faculties intact. We've got the requisites we need. We've got the opportunities. The teachings are here and available. We've come to, to them uh, to learn. So how rare that is. And we don't know when we'll be the next one uh, to die unexpectedly. So using that to, to wake up, bring energy, um, stir us out of driftiness, stir us out of sluggishness, uh, focusing on our priorities. How do we want to live the rest of our life, particularly if it's going to end in 24 hours or less? So recollection of death, marana sati many ways to do that. I won't go into much detail now because we've talked about it quite a bit the past couple of weeks. One of my favorite recollections, contemplations, is uh, one called uh, Recollecting, Contemplating uh, the Peace of Nibbana. Upasamanusati. And it's, we, uh, there was a question at uh, tea time the other night about, you know, kind of the nature of Nibbana. Um, what we're, you know, talking about one of the resources that we have to, that discusses at the book, The Island, that Lumpur Pasano and Ajanamaro uh, wrote together some years ago that talks about the goal, Nibbana. Um, and the Buddha, you know, didn't talk about it a huge amount, but there were so many references and descriptions of the qualities. Uh, it, it's a 
something that's hard to pin down in concepts because it's beyond the conceptual realm. Um, the teachings all point in that direction and talk about the qualities that uh, one can experience along the way and uh, upon realization. Um, and those are worth considering uh, uh, as a perception, uh, drawing it up as a, as a fabricated perception in the mind, the perception of peace, just to sort of say, well, you know, I don't really, I can't define it so specifically. Um, lots of words can be used to help describe a lot of the qualities. Um, but to bring up a sense of what would it be like, uh, what would it be like if I, even if I haven't experienced a, a, a Nibbana or uh, the kind of uh, cooling uh, and ending of suffering, as it sometimes is described. Um, but I can use my imagination to establish a perception based on some of the words that the Buddha used in, in describing uh, the goal, Nibbana. Um, there's a wonderful uh, line, uh, several lines that you've heard before probably, but uh, it's always worth it repeating, and I find it's actually worse in those moments when I need a, a directed kind of meditation to just recite them in my own, in my own mind uh, and reflect on them and consider them and, and what each of those lines means. This is peaceful. This is sublime. The stilling of all formations. The relinquishment of all acquisitions. The destruction of craving. Dispassion, cessation, nibbana. So, starting, this is peaceful, this is sublime, uh, but the stilling of all formations, uh, sankhara formations, are all these constructions, these fabrications of body, speech, and mind, uh, all the actions we take with intention all the uh, um, ways we speak intentionally and, and uh, thoughts, actions of mind, the intellect. Uh, these formations that are based oftentimes on reactivity, uh, the underlying tendencies, the underlying causes of greed, hatred, delusion, the hindrances that uh, occupy our minds, uh, our hearts, uh, and um, the formations that come from them. And the fact that upon realization, uh, or even in, in bits of uh, insight uh, and experiences of uh, samadhi in a, in a temporary format, uh, that these come to stillness. Uh, they are they either cease completely or are held in abeyance for a period of time uh, and just quiet down, settle down. Uh, these movements of mind uh, can be described as movements of mind, karmic, karmic formations uh, arising, passing away, and when not seen clearly and, and when not released, uh, just uh, form our experience. But these have an opportunity to settle and to still, uh, and a quality of the uh, of nibbana 
the unconditioned, is the stilling of these formations. It, they just finally settle down and, and stop. What would that be like? Those underlying tendencies are just... Oof. Hmm. So we can imagine what it might be like to have a moment even of the stilling of all formations, the quelling of that train of of, uh, sankhara. It doesn't mean that we're a a completely blank experience, but it means that uh, we're not hopping on that train, we're not jumping on that train. The train may come through, but our awareness, our hearts uh, don't uh, engage with it, don't jump onto it. The relinquishment of all acquisitions, acquisitions being uh, translation of the word upadi, sometimes translated also as um, the constituents of existence. So it's not just like the, the relinquishment of acquisitions, meaning giving up possessions uh, in a material sense, but the relinquishment of um, the bases for how we experience existence and being. And those refer to the, the five khandas as affected uh, by clinging, particularly with the clinging of the sense, I am, uh, a sense of me, mine, myself, Uh, in relation to this body, in relation to this mind. And how that sense of of ownership, that sense of self, that sense of uh, me, of being, uh, can can cease. Uh, We still experience a body and mental factors but without that identification. So this is what's meant by uh, upadi. And to to think, what would that be like? Just to have this knowing of the body, this knowing of the mind, but a separateness between the two, where we're not holding, clinging onto that sense of of self, that perception of self. Stepping back from from being entranced uh, by a a sense of an ego. Peaceful, sublime, what a relief. Destruction of craving that constant movement towards trying to seek pleasure, trying to get away from unpleasant feeling that the root, those are the root causes of suffering or the, the, essentially the movement of the mind towards fear, anxiety, cloudiness, confusion, the delusion aspects of our experience, destruction of craving, can see the stillness that comes from that, the sense that, what a, again, what a relief. 
so those three those three aspects those three contemplations you know, stilling stilling of formations relinquishment of uh, constituents of being or acquisitions sense of self and the ending of craving mm. just passion just not not buying into it not wanting to get involved with it all anymore having had enough not interested ceasing cessation the full complete quieting and non-arising neuroda in its most uh, developed form of non-arising nibbana just that coolness the uh, yeah, the ending of, of confusion, the cessation of becoming, uh, as Sariputta talks about, Nibbana is the cessation of becoming, just not needing to exist in a, in a, in a, um, a self, uh, self-obsessed uh, way, not annihilation, it's not an annihilation of all experience, but it's a disentanglement uh, from all of the ways uh, that we can uh, experience uh, our reality that lead to suffering. So that's some descriptors of, of the peace of Nibbana that are good to bring up, reflect on, bring to, bring to mind. It's a way of settling. So if any of those words or contemplations have had an effect, just as I've been talking about them, uh, and have helped kind of settle and soothe your own minds, what does that feel like right now? Can you tune into your body for a second and feel the breathing? So these kinds of contemplations or reflections are ways we can set up the mind, uh, can bring a sense of ease, pamoja. That's what we're looking to develop, this sense of ease that then uh, establishes a, a, a space uh, for us to be able to then set aside those more active contemplations and return to satipatthana, possibly even the mindfulness of breathing. But then it's, the breath is you're not forcing yourself to go find the breath and look at it and attend to it uh, as an object of concentration. It's there. Uh, it just comes and it descends into your, into your awareness. And this is where uh, samatha vipassana kind of come together. One supports the other, having an act of reflection. Um, can help settle the mind. And then one allows oneself to, to develop that more fully back to the non-directed, what they call the non-directed meditation, uh, referring basically to 
the more fundamental satipatthana contemplations, all four, four foundations, of not, four frames of reference. So it's much better to do something like that in my mind than to kind of just doggedly try and pursue with a lot of frustration uh, an object that's not working at, at the time, uh, trying to uh, fulfill the expectation that uh, one should be able to always be able to focus on uh, the breathing. If your mind is settled enough and able enough to do that from the get-go, that's great, do it. Uh, but uh, many times we need to start with something a little more active, contemplative, using the thinking process uh, to our advantage, not being, uh, not being the victim or the prisoner of, of uh, uh, a completely distracted monkey mind, but uh, harnessing that energy and that ability uh, to uh, bring a sense of, of easefulness. So I just to reflect with, I can reflect with gratitude that the Buddha gave us so many different tools uh, to use in this practice uh, and that a lot of our practice is, is developing this toolkit that we can choose uh, from uh, depending on what, uh, what's arising at any particular time to use that with wisdom and to evaluate the effects of it. So uh, I think I'll just leave it there for this evening and offer that uh, for uh, however useful it may be.